0: Good afternoon. Um, I'm Heidi Hornick. I teach art history here and I'm the current chair of the Robert Foster Cherry Award Committee. On behalf of this faculty committee, I would like to welcome you this afternoon to the presentation of the first of our three finalists for the 2010 Cherry Award. The Cherry Award for Great Teaching was created by Robert Foster Cherry, who earned his AB from Baylor University in 1929 and then enrolled in Baylor Law School in 1932. With a deep appreciation for how his life was changed by significant teachers, he made an exceptional estate bequest to establish the Cherry Award Program to recognize great teachers and bring them in contact with Baylor University students. The first award was made in 1991 and is awarded biennially. The Cherry Award Program is designed to honor great teachers, to stimulate discussion in the Academy about the value of teaching, and to encourage departments and institutions to value their own great teachers. Each of the three finalists will receive $15,000, give a presentation on their home campus, and make a presentation on the Baylor campus this month. In addition, the home department of each finalist will receive $10,000 to foster the development of pedagogical skills. The winner of the 2010 Cherry Award will receive a prize of $200,000 and will teach in residence on the Baylor University campus either in the fall of 2010 or the spring of 2011. To further Baylor's commitment to great teaching, the winner's home department will receive an additional $25,000. The winner will be announced this spring. I would also like to thank and recognize at this time Linda McGregor, our program coordinator of the Cherry Award for her fine work. And also ask that current committee members and those of you who just rotated off that were involved with the 2010 award, please stand and also be thanked. Our finalist today, Dr. Roger Rosenblatt, distinguished professor of English at Stony Brook University, will be formally introduced momentarily. We also welcome his wife, Jen. At this point, I would ask Professor Rosenblatt to join me and receive a medallion and his check as recognition of his being named a finalist for the 2010 Robert Foster Cherry Award. Dr. Diana Vatanza, Chair of the Department of English, will now be introducing Dr. Rosenblatt. Dr. Doug.
1: let us know if you can't hear if you'll raise your hand at any point. My introduction to Roger Rosenblatt occurred many years ago when I discovered him as the essayist on the mcneil Lair News Hour. His essays were so insightful, so eloquently written, and so beautifully delivered that I quickly became an admirer Since that time, many of us have come to know him also as a journalist, novelist, playwright, teacher, and public intellectual. Professor Rosenblatt completed his undergraduate degree at New York University and earned his MA and PhD in English and American Literature at Harvard. His teaching career began at Harvard immediately after receiving his degree. He later taught at Georgetown and Columbia, where he was director of the George D. Delacorte Center for Ma- Magazine Journalism and editor of the Columbia Journalism Review. He's also been a visiting faculty member at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. He is currently distinguished professor of English at Stony Brook University and teaches on both the main campus and at South ha- the Southampton campus on Long Island. He began his j- career in journalism as literary editor and columnist for the New Republic and columnist for the Washington Post. He became editor of US News and World Report and later editor for, at large for Time. For essays he contributed to Time, he was twice awarded the George Polk Award for Excellence in Journalism. He's perhaps most widely known for his role on the News on PBS where for many years he regularly commented on a broad range of topics in essays for which he won both a Peabody and an Emmy. He's the author of 12 books, including Children of War, 1983, which received the Robert F. Kennedy Book Award and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Coming Apart, A Memoir of the Harvard Wars of 1969, published in 1997, Rules for Aging, A Wry and Witty Guide to Life, 2000, Where We Stand, 30 Reasons for Loving Our Country, published in 2002, and two novels, Lampum Rising and Beat, a novel. He's also written six plays and wrote and performed a one-person show, Free Speech in America, which was named one of the ten best plays of the year by the New York Times. His forthcoming book, Making Toast, A Family Story, will appear in February 2010. Though his nonfiction books and essays most often address serious issues, his novels and plays are comic and satiric. However, he argues for a fundamental connection between essays and satire. Satire, he says, is an essay standing on its head, sticking its tongue out. (laughs) In his career, both as a writer and as a teacher, Rosenblatt has always been an advocate for the power of the word. His mission, one reviewer commented, is to protect our language from abuse. As a wordsmith, he takes pleasure in linguistic precision. But his love of words goes beyond the desire for linguistic precision. He values words because they are the tools of powerful human expression. Indeed, shortly after 9-11, in an essay in Time, he argued that a fitting and useful memorial for the World Trade Center site would be a library. Not a great, imposing library, but a regular old local branch library with kids bopping in and retirees bent over newspapers and a librarian who looks very much like Laura Bush telling a teenage girl where she can find Emma. It is through words and sometimes books that human beings tell stories. And it's through stories that we remember and that we grow. Or as he puts it, Storytelling is what the human animal does to progress, to learn to live with one another. Everything we do is a story. History, poetry, painting, sports, science, gossip, ourselves, and it's a story told again and again. We tell the same stories over and over of our strivings for heroism, for honor, for profit, for social, social progress, and understanding and sympathy and power, most of all, for love. And it is the love of words and the power of storytelling that Rosenblatt conveys to his readers and to his students and that he will address in his lecture today. Tell me a story, why we talk to each other. Please join me in welcoming Roger Rosenblatt to Baylor.
2: I know sure better than I deserve uh, to. I haven't timed this talk, um, so there might be some time left over uh, afterwards, or it might go for four and a half hours. (laughs) I hope that's not inconvenient. In the 1950s, Ray Bradbury wrote a story called There Will Come Soft Rains, and the story begins, the reader is introduced to the story, by seeing a house in California And uh, machines are going off, Uh, some elementary machines, a toaster is popping and a clock is going. Um, There's a machine to remind that the the house is set in the future, the future then, for Bradbury being our present now. Um, Reminding the family what bills need to be paid, another uh, recording device reminds them what anniversaries are occurring in the family, what birthdays are occurring, and so forth garage doors going up and down, the sprinklers sprinkling, and eventually, not too long into the story, we become aware that there are no people there, and we we understand that a nuclear holocaust has occurred, and the world has disappeared, and all that's left are the machines that we came up with. And in the evening, there is a kind of highfalutin machine that recites poetry for the family, the family that is absent. And the poem that it recites in Bradbury's story is There Will Come Soft Rains, a poem by Sarah Teesdale. There will come soft rains and the smell of the ground and the swallows circling with their shimmering sound and frogs in the pool singing at night and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire whistling their whims on a low fence wire and no one will know of the war. Not one will care at last when it is done. Not one would mind neither bird nor tree if mankind perished utterly. And spring herself, when she awoke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone. You read the poem, and you wonder, why did Sarah Teasdale bother to write it? If she actually believed that we were all going to disappear, why take the effort? You read Bradbury's story, you ask, why did he bother to write it? If he thought that we were going to be obliterated, why write? By the way, the obliteration of the world was a topic in the 1950s. Um, uh, Some of you will remember Duck and Cover uh, when we were in school. Um, As uh, my friends know, it must have worked. None of us was actually killed in a nuclear But if it's so, why? Why do it? Why bother? Why tell a story? Because we have to. It is what we were made to do. We are a narrative species. We like to kid ourselves and call ourselves a rational species, but anybody can disprove that. But a narrative species, a group that learns from one another and encourages one another and supports one another and perhaps even attacks one another through stories, through what we tell, that one can prove you may remember The Perfect Storm, the, not the movie, which was terrible, the book, um, the, uh, uh, about the, the fishermen off, uh, off, I think it was Maine, maybe Massachusetts. Anyway, in the beginning of the book, there's a, a mackerel schooner that goes out, and a man um, is holding a lantern in order to write a, a something, a message, while the ship is going down. It's go- there's no question it's going down going down in a typhoon. He knows it's going down, yet still, he holds that lantern, he writes his message, he sends it off. In the Warsaw Ghetto, the last days of the Warsaw Ghetto, the Jews remaining knew perfectly well what their fate was. They had seen their family go off to extermination camps, they had seen others dying around them of starvation and diphtheria, and yet, and yet, they took pieces of paper and wrote notes on them fragments of autobiography, poems. Rolled them into scrolls and stuck them into the crevices of the ghetto walls. Why? Why do it? They would have assumed that if anybody, had, for all they knew, the Nazis had inherited the earth. They had no news from the outside world. Why bother? You know the story of the diving bell and the butterfly. The uh, Jean-Dominique uh, Boby, the editor in France of the magazine L who suffered a stroke, I think in his 40s, so massive that he could only move his left eyelid. That's all he could move. And with that eyelid, he signaled the alphabet. And with that alphabet, he wrote the diving bell. And the butterfly, he wrote an autobiography. He had a story to tell. Canterbury Tales, go this way, go that way. Let's fill up the time and tell a story. The Book of Job. What does the messenger in Job say at the end? And I only alone am left to tell thee. And I only alone am left to tell thee, which Melville echoes in Moby Dick, I alone am left to tell the tale. To tell the tale. To tell the tale. I only alone am left to tell thee. You don't really need only and alone in the same sentence. (laughs) But it's fun to edit the Bible. (laughs) Everything we do, everything we do is a story a story we tell one another the law what is the law what is a jury trial but a competition of stories prosecution tells one story the defense tells another story and it's up to the jury or the judge to decide what story they prefer the only reason that O.J. got off was that Marsha Clark told a less persuasive story than Johnny Cochran O.J. got another story more recently in You remember the Boston Nanny case where it was a terrible thing where a nanny was accused of murdering a, a child. At first, there was a, um, a verdict of innocent and then an, a verdict of guilty. And then the judge, who didn't like either story, gave yet another verdict of guilty again, I think. Medicine. There is, medicine is so involved in stories now that there is a branch of medicine called narrative medicine in which patients are trusted to tell the stories of their diseases. Here, in the world of the highest technology, where we can calibrate diseases uh, down to the smallest units, still, still, the word of the patient now is becoming more important. How did you feel Tuesday? How did you feel then Thursday? What did you feel a week from Friday? And so forth. And interestingly and correspondingly, the doctor tells a story to the patient, the story of the therapy. You will, if I give you this, you'll feel this way Monday and uh, that way next Wednesday and hope there's a happy ending to this story a week from Friday. In business, business is based on stories. It's, it's not the way we do things. Business people tell one another. It's not the way it's done. Meaning that there's a whole mythology of, of uh, material in every business, the Nabisco De- the company or General Motors or whatever company it is, they do things a certain way and they base their uh, current lives on the stories that they told one another down through the generations. And so, sports, every sports game is a story. It's a nice story because it has a definite ending. Somebody wins, somebody loses. Songs. The lyrics of songs are stories. One of my favorite stories, very brief but to the point, I want to get you out of my dreams and into my car. (laughs) Politics, politics, all politicians are storytellers. He who tells the best story wins one way or another. Pol Pot, no less than FDR. Each coming with a story, a story with a certain appeal. Can these people then tell such a story, spin such a yarn, that the people are behind them, are in their thrall? It's why when politicians make mess up, when they say ridiculous things, that we're so delighted. Because we expect some sort of coherence there. And when the coherence is broken, that life doesn't get much better. Jimmy Carter, at the 1980 uh, Democratic Convention, introduced... He hated um, uh, Hubert Humphrey. Um, and uh, he introduced him in front of the convention as Hubert Horatio Hornblower. <laughs> and, and you know it was on his mind, you know. He did. George Bush, not the most recent and the closest, but his dad, um, was... Was great too. Uh, He wanted to praise Václav Havel, um, then president of Czechoslovakia. Um, And what he said was we must be very grateful to Václav Havel for living or dying, whatever, for freedom. (laughs) I always like the whatever. Ronald Reagan was wonderful, too. He, re- on his trip to La- he returned from a trip to Latin America. He said, you'd be surprised. They're all individual countries. <laughs> the, the thing is that there, most of these fellows are all good men. And, and as Reagan also said, let's not throw the baby out with the dishes. <laughs> but we love to hear these flubs. We love the break of the narrative. You know, When something just simply... Uh, actually, if, I probably shouldn't do this, but... Uh, what the hell, I have to check. <laughs> um, the check. The funniest political story I ever heard involved Ronald Reagan. It, didn't, he, it was not something he said. He was about to make a speech you know, in, in front of a very, very conservative uh, uh, audience and a white-tie dinner. And he was being introduced by Peter Grace. And it had, the speech had something to do with Reagan's opposition to the abortion laws, but that's almost irrelevant, given what Grace said. So here's how Grace introduced President Reagan. Ronald Reagan knows where life begins. Ronald Reagan knows that everyone in the world, every one of you, was at one time a feces. (laughs) Poor Grace repeated feces twice. Well, who is to say he was wrong? Psychiatry has to do with stories. Schizophrenics are the poor souls who can't make the connections. Make the connections of the story, of the narrative. In psychology, I was talking about this with uh, someone this afternoon. In psychology, there is a theory, which I love, that children learn language to tell the stories that are already in them. Children learn language to tell stories already in them. It's such a wonderful idea. Education of course the salesman comes to the door knocks on the door next time you hear a knock on the door you assume it's a salesman we learn we learn by language we learn by experience what is uh, the uh, the birth of Jesus called? what's the birth of Jesus called? what is it called? Hmm? the nativity nativity, and what else is it called after the nativity? more granted. A Christmas story, you say, but I say, the greatest story ever told. Why do they say that? Why do people say the greatest story ever told? Not the greatest event, but the greatest story. Because the power of the story is greater than an event. The power of the story carries and carries and carries. The, however, uh, creationists and, um, and scientists and, uh, uh, in evolution um, may uh, squawk and fight uh, each other. Both stories are magnificent. Both stories are magnificent. One is science and taught in school, one can be taught anywhere you, you like, but both stories are thrilling, thrilling. Darwin, on the Beagle, carried one book with him, Charles Darwin, and it was Paradise Lost. Science itself is a story, continually written, by a number of hands rather than one which makes it interesting. The scientists embrace the power of the myth series of stories composed, a group telling a story DNA, we are a story waiting to be told each of us a story waiting to be told our DNA, and one of the interesting things about our lives, maybe the things that most interestingly challenge our lives is that can we change our predestined program is there a way we can thwart that that destiny built into us Neuroscientists tell us that we are, we are a narrative species, that we were built to tell stories, the neurons firing between the hippocampus and the Brokaw's region of the brain. As you can tell, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but the scientists can. It's all very clear and it's all very mysterious and stories allow us to live in mystery. The uncle that we have who at every Thanksgiving tells the same anecdote over and over again. Listen, he will never, even he will never tell the same story the same way twice. And the sentence that you write, I don't know if this has happened to you, it has happened to me. You've written the sentence, no one but you has written the sentence. You write the sentence and you read it to yourself and you still don't know where it's going to end. Where is this happening? How, would, how is this sentence going to end? Maybe it's a suspension of disbelief or, or, or a suspension of experience that says we would rather have the excitement, the romance of, of wondering where the story would end than knowing what we perfectly well know because we created it. As a teacher of creative writing, I try to help students unearth the stories in them and do what I can to make them beautiful. The Cherry Award uh, uh, would like uh, me and uh, the other candidates to talk about method, but I, I, don't, I don't have a method. I, um, I do have some, some thoughts that I give my students, and they have to do with storytelling, or how they can best tell their stories. They say that writing is something that can't be taught, which is a backdoor put down of the teacher. It is not true. Um, I could, n- I would never pretend to say that I would produce a professional writer. Um, uh, that would have to do with things way beyond me. But I, I can, and most good teachers of writing can teach you to write better than you did before, so that you can see a little more, you know, just a little more into yourself and a little. Get a little more pleasure of what, of what you do. So I give them things to think about. One is uh, what I call a throat clearing exercise. Um, most writers have trouble starting, um, a confounding first paragraph. What I mean to tell you is, and just a waste of time. And I couldn't get beyond that that sort of halting beginning. And then I thought, what if I just went directly to some sensory stim- stimulation? So I started to, just present things before the class. Something odd or interesting to look at. Or a piece of jazz to listen to. Or um, a rock or a piece of sand to uh, to touch. I gave them a flower. I went to a florist and I asked for a particularly fragrant flower and they said why don't you try phlox. And I took phlox and I gave a stalk to everyone in uh, in the class. And I said just follow your nose. Smell it. Follow your nose. See what it brings back to you. And some people wrote about a corsage. Their women wrote about a corsage they received at a dance and others at a wedding and some at a funeral and so forth. That's the, what, what the smell did. But they were on a slalom. They went down. They didn't, ha- they didn't hesitate. The, the smell of the flower brought back the memory. The memory brought, brought, incurred its own words and they were off. There was a young woman I was teaching this many years ago. Um, for God knows what reason she had tattoos all over her body and um, you know, and, and I worried for her. You know, um, and she wrote this, p- and she and, and and she she looked angry all the time. And then, and then she wrote this piece about when she received the flowers. She um, she, uh, she had sold roses at the side of a highway, and then she wrote this line: "But no one brought roses for me." And that was the beginning of writing. She knew it. I knew it. Um, Diana mentioned a stint that I uh, did a few years ago at Harvard's Kennedy School. They asked me to come up and teach uh, the essay. And Harvard's Kennedy School, as you know, is full of world beaters, and they're they're all about to run countries. So I don't know what they wanted to do with me. But the, um, I, uh, but they all took the, a lot of them took this course. Too many uh, in, um, in the essay, and I could not get through to them. I could not do it. Um, everything was dutiful, and everything was solid, and everything was. Um, uh, reasonable, um, in the dullest sort of, sort of way, but I could not get them to find themselves because writing without original language is nothing. You have to, you have to do it. You have to find what is you and you alone, what you and the story that is yours and yours alone. And then I got this um, this brainstorm one day, and I walked in. I closed the door, just to close the door of the room, and they listened and I went to the door and I opened it and I closed it again and listened again and I said now listen to this and they listened again to the full sound of the lock and the tumblers of a door closing a big heavy door and I said right now what do you hear in the closing of a door and they sat very quietly every teacher in this room knows the pleasure of looking out and seeing students really absorbed lost in their own worlds. and Then a young woman, who had not written anything worthwhile for all those months, began her piece. In my father's house, there were no doors. She was brought up on a Navy base, she grew up in a trailer, she was writing about her life then, and she was off. And it was beautiful. And a gay young man wrote about breaking up with his partner and he said, uh, he said we didn't click, but the door clicked. And another young man wrote about a morning in which the father left the household, walked out on the family, him, his sisters, his mother. And he described the door closing on the family. And then he wrote, then we sat down and we had breakfast, pancakes, blueberry." And as soon as he said blueberry, then you knew you were in the hands of a writer. That it was coming. All that was inside him. All that was original to him. And so, throat clearing. one can get Once you get through it, get two people. It doesn't create the whole piece. But it gets you in the sense, you know, in the presence of mind to say, okay, here we go. Downhill. Find your subject. Find your subject. Um... It's not easy, you stumble around. Sometimes people have subjects and they have no idea that they have the subjects. In the same class, I'm reminded, was a, um, another young woman who had been the only, uh, she was about five foot four, must have weighed 120 pounds soaking wet. She is, was the only woman in a hand-to-hand combat room, uh, unit in the Marines in Iraq. Okay. So, naturally, we want to hear her story. No, she doesn't want to write the story. And we argued back and forth the entire term. Her name was Anuradha. Anu, write the story. No, I don't want write No. And she was very, very stubborn. And I didn't know how to crack that nut because that was her story. She may have resisted it, but there's no question that was her story, which she, she eventually wrote her own way, which had to do with protesting the war action. But that came later. And then I figured out how I was going to get Anu to write her story. I decided to become her commanding officer. (laughs) And she walked in I said, write the blank story. (laughs) And so she did. (laughs) Know what your story is about. Find, if you are young writers, find any writers. Find someone you trust, wife, husband, partner, friend, someone you trust, to ask you the question relentlessly, what is this about? What is this about? And if you cannot answer that question, then start again and figure it out. Sometimes you find out wandering. Edgar Doctorow, Yale Doctorow, says he doesn't really know where he's going in a story. Um, That he compares his quest to uh, riding in a car where the headlights show only a certain amount. Uh, ahead, on the uh, on the highway, and then they then there's darkness. So he goes as far as the headlights reveal. He writes as far as the headlights reveal, and then he goes on. There's a bit that's not true about that because eventually you have to know where you're going. But the thrill of actually finding of the of the quest of just following the lights is wonderful, and then the end usually reveals itself to you have to sharpen language, Language. talk about original language. Mark Twain said the difference between the word and the right word is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. You are only in the lightning business when you write. It is the only business for you. Clean, clear sentences. This is not for everybody, but it is for me, and I believe the simple word is so much more important. Just say it, just say it. <laughs> say it, um, students. Every time I get a student uh, writing a paragraph in which somebody says something in the beginning, then intones something, then declares something, then avers something, <laughs> I, I remind her or him: just say it. It's the power is what is being said, not some ridiculous word you've concocted in order to indicate that you know the variety of the language. <laughs> Grab a reader's attention. It's very important. Uh, readers have other things to do, uh, like, you know, like the wedding guest in... Um, uh, what's Goldridge's poem? a oh, Mariner, the ancient Mariner. Um, the, the, uh, you have to grab, him, uh, and grab her by the lapels. Uh, the first sentence of James Joyce's clay, for example. And then when you grab the attention, it's not, ju- it's not just some wild thrust. You've got to fill with enough information so that you're going to be use you're going to use that information later on in fiction. The matron had given her leave to go out as soon as the women's tea was over, and Mariah looked forward to her evening out. Simple sentence, choices, sentence, the beginning of the short story, Clay. There are eight facts in that sentence. Eight facts that, including the absence of a last name for Mariah, that on which The story will depend, but it's all very simple. The language is very clear. Don't get fancy, don't get fancy about it. Choose anticipation over surprise. Surprise, I don't know anybody who uses it well. The only person I actually knew who ever used it was uh, O. Henry. And um, if you've ever read all of O. Henry's stories, maybe one works, Uh, but they all end in surprise. I mean, the thing about a surprise is who cares? The 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 uh, uh, okay the gift of the magi was fine, but it wasn't it wasn't because we were surprised by the ending. In, in a, it was it was because we were gratified that the couple loved each other enough to make the ending satisfactory. Coleridge said this um, about anticipation and surprise, uh, and he was talking about Hamlet. He said we know Hamlet is going to buy it. He didn't say buy it, but, we know that Hamlet is uh, is doomed at the beginning of the play. There's no question of that. But how he is and the fact that our hopes come with him and what must, what, the arc that must uh, be traversed before he dies at the end, that is the thing that gives it power. That's the thing. We know it's going to happen, we know it's going to happen, and it happens. Not we know it's going to happen, we know it's going to happen, and it doesn't happen. He, he compared the, uh, uh, as if you were looking at a piece of land and you were waiting for the sun to rise. If the moon rises over it, it's mere surprise. If the sun rises over it, it's a miracle. It's wonderful. For those baseball fans out here, I'm sure you have, I have a lot of Yankee fans here in the audience. There's a Yankee reliever called Mario, Mariano Rivera. Mariano Rivera is, um, uh, pitches usually only one inning, the last inning of each game. He has pitched the same pitch as far as I can tell for 10 years perhaps 12 every batter who gets up against Mariano Rivera knows what's coming there's no question he's going to throw a cutter (laughs) he's going to throw a cutter and yet everybody who gets up strikes out against Mariano Rivera they anticipate they get it they can't do anything with it speaking of baseball I'm really very disappointed in Texas and in Texans uh, generally for not uh, making sure that the Red Sox were out of the playoffs. <laughs> it was in your hands. Texas perfectly good team. What's the matter with your people? <laughs> Choose anticipation over surprise. Choose imagination over invention. It's almost the same sort of thing. Invention is very easy. Invention is very easy for a writer. Invention is a three-eared camel who speaks French and does international diplomacy. That's invention. Anybody can make up something silly like that. I mean, there's some very good writers. John Irving, for one, uh, is a very good writer, but he is limited by the fact only that he deals in invention. And so one is very pleased or titillated by the fact that he came up with something you would never imagine before, never thought of before, that it only goes so far. But imagination itself, imagination goes deeper. Imagination is the camel. Not three years, two. Just the camel. The diva-eyed camel. Standing there, real, and you walk all around the animal and you see it and you dream into it. To write, you dream into life. You learn to dream into life. And we do this all the time anyway. It is not a chore. It is not a difficult thing to do. Shelley said... We must learn to imagine what we know. We must learn to imagine what we know. He didn't say it as well as I just did, but that's the idea. (laughs) That's the idea of it. uh, um, uh, That we live in a world of of observed reality, objective reality, We see what's going on, and then we dream into it. And we imagine what happened. That is poetry. That is fiction. That is plays or essays. As for teaching itself, um, the act of unearthing one's student's stories, three things have struck me as um, useful. One is praising one's students. Uh, there is a kind of, there is. I don't know if it's a school, but there's sort of a theory of pedagogy that gets the idea that the cranky teacher is the effective teacher. Um, what was that thing where John Hausman was playing in the, the law school? You, you know, you remember what I'm talking about. Anyway, he's a very crabby guy, and the, the students are supposed to learn more from the, um, the angry teacher who has contempt for them. I don't believe that for a moment. Um, the, the, uh, I mean, you can have contempt for your students, but you must hide it. <laughs> no, I don't. I, actually, I, I, actually, I mean the, the, the opposite that you praise him I, I, I studied poetry writing uh, uh, in a seminar with Robert Lowell and um, uh, when, I, when I it was a, a small group and, and with Lowell and Lowell was at the, to, at the time the premier poet um, uh, in America and he scared us he scared us to death I mean if you ever got um, a half a compliment I mean he talked in this kind of whiny southern aristocratic way that's alright that's alright it, the, 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 and, he'd, and he'd say that and you'd be happy for months you know. <laughs> interesting thing was um, he was what was then called manic depressive now bi- uh, bipolar but at the time um, the uh, I don't know if, I think this was even before lithium so that he would act it was almost like Persephone he would He would teach in the fall term, but for the first half of the term, he was just the guy I just described. He would rarely give a compliment, but you knew where you were getting the goods. As cranky as he was, you knew you were getting a straight assessment of how how terrible you were. (laughs) And and then, as he would move into the the depressed stage of, uh, of his disease, he would start to get acritical, and he'd start to love everything and everything you did was wonderful, and the class would get very depressed and just sit there. But I still don't believe it. You know, as good as Lowell was, as good as Lowell was as a poet, the idea of scaring your, uh, uh, your students rather than praising them is a bad idea. Actually, I, I, this seems an odd thing to advocate. I think one should like one's students. <laughs> you students don't make it easy. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really joking about that. that one should like one's students, admire one's students, and work uh, for them and worry about the material allowed. Teaching um, is not necessarily me to you and talking back and forth. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's a teacher worrying so much about the material in public and the students overhearing him worry. And that is a lesson in itself. And the teacher gets so absorbed in the subject that he's really, he's really um, worrying about it and involved in it. And the students uh, say, that's worth thinking about. And maybe even that's a life worth leading. It makes for freer discussions, liking your students. <laughs> I had a student um, last month, Jasmine, <laughs> um, in my... Uh, in a modern poetry class I teach, she raises her hand out of the blue and says, you know, I don't like John Donne. Not like John Donne. I've been teaching for 40 years. Nobody ever said anything approaching not liking John Donne." I said, why Jasmine? He says, he doesn't have anything interesting to say. He doesn't have anything original to say. So I said, well, don't you believe that form rescues content? She said, no. Yet, I liked her. (laughs) Where I was. You have to be on their side. You have to be on your student's side, not only as students, but as people. You have to wish them well. Really mean it. You have to wish them well. I try to teach as I write. I'd like the writing to be useful. I'd like the teaching to be useful. And usefulness is a good standard for living, I think. It involves all the normal spiritual qualities, but it also has a practicality that I find appealing. The name Lewis Thomas made me known to some of you. He wrote Lives of a Cell, he was a scientist, a doctor, a biologist, a philosopher and when he was, he was dying of lymphoma and I wanted to write about him, I knew him, I wanted to write about him so I wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine just about Lewis. And we talked first about dying. I, he told, I said, you know so much about living, you've told such a, can you talk about dying? And he said, no oh, Roger, I don't want to talk about dying. I don't want to talk about dying. I'd much rather tell people how to live and my standard for living is usefulness. Can I be useful? And I'd like to know that my life was useful. I wrote the piece for the New York Times. Um, it came out, uh, um, and he was still all right. He, a few days later, he went to the hospital and fell into a coma, but he was okay. In those few days, I and the Times must have received a thousand letters of appreciation from people who didn't know that Lewis Thomas was alive or dead or know anything about him except that they had read his books. And I read him the letters, and I got him the letters. I even read some when he fell into a coma, because you never know. But the point was that he would never doubt, he could never doubt that his life had been useful, that it had met that standard. Ginny and I experienced a terrible tragedy a couple of years ago when our daughter died, a daughter a doctor. And I talked to the New Yorker talked to me about writing about it, and David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, said something um, indispensable which is valuable. He said, if you write about your daughter's death and your life afterwards, our life afterwards being our life with our grandchildren and our son-in-law with whom we live now, if you write about it, write with more grace than pain. Write with more grace than pain. You have to think what grace means. Grace is not simply the blessing you receive, it's the blessing that you can give others. And so when I wrote the story last December in the book... Um, Uh, to which Diana kindly uh, referred, I did it with that in mind, that perhaps it would be useful to others. And from the response, I gather that it was useful to others. Otherwise, there would have been no point in doing it. Otherwise, It would have simply been an exercise in either self-pity or self-flagellation, but not something that really mattered. Which brings us back to telling stories. Why do we do it? Why do we talk to one another? There are practical uses, of course, we talk, we write to warn one another, to protect one another. But birds do that, too. We write to break the silence. No small thing. Sometimes I think we cro knocked off the Neanderthals because they wouldn't talk. <laughs> they couldn't talk. Mel Brooks said that he was so loud because he didn't want people to think he was dead. <laughs> And I think we write to improve our own story to improve our own story to find out who we are to find out what we're worth to find out in that wonderful surprise that we might be better than we think I was in Sudan writing for Vanity Fair of all places a story on the lost boys of Sudan with a wonderful photographer Sebastian Salgado whose work you may know He's, he, does, he only uses a Leica in black and white shots, and he is the great, great photographer of human suffering. And Salgano and I landed in a camp um, in southern Sudan to which 400 boys had come, had walked down from the north, being shot at by the government and the plains, uh, avoiding animals, starving, uh, suffering from disease, having nothing. Okay? And they see these two white guys suddenly dropped in as if from Mars. And what do they do, these boys? first thing they do is they build us beds and then they built us tables and then they made sure we had water before they had water and in the evening we sat around and they told stories if anybody asked me if I've ever seen a civilized person i tell them that story we tell stories to improve our lot we tell stories to get our own story right and maybe someday we will get our story right and I suppose to prove we're all in the same boat together to share our fears, our exultations, our follies and our humanity for what it's worth one of the best parts of teaching is to discover how close we all are teachers in this room, high, colleagues all over the country all over the world know this experience you're with young people for an hour and the hour means a lot. You are connected to people you may never see again, um, but you are connected in the most important ways, in the ideas that you share, the thoughts you share, the emotions that you express, and so forth. Once in a class, I was teaching a girl from one of the islands, a young woman from one of the islands, I think Barbados, and we were looking at clay, James Joyce's story that I mentioned before, I know clay so well that under sodium pentothal, I could recite it. I know it's not much of an achievement, but I can do it. And this young woman raised her hand timidly because not only was she worlds removed from Joyce, the world of 19th century James Joyce, but she was removed from any thought of literary criticism. I don't know if she'd ever done any literary criticism or any thought of looking at a book or anything like that. And she said... I think I've seen something interesting on in the first page. I said, what is that? She said, you know how the barmbrack bread that's described, the Irish bread that's described, as being so finely cut that you cannot see the fissures in the bread? I believe that is the way Joyce made Mariah. And I sat back and I said, you know, I have never heard anyone say that before. And it is... Just right, it seems just right. And I smiled, and she smiled, and the class smiled. And at that moment, we did not need a word. Thank you. Thank you, and and a few minutes remaining, if anyone has a question or a comment, I'd be happy to knock it back and forth. No math. I'm sorry, every writer needs what? Oh, yes. Are you kidding? The... the, uh, um, Boy, do we need uh, editors, um, the, uh, like a safety net. You know, I, am, I have been grateful my whole life for an editor catching this or that. Um, uh, sometimes errors of fact, uh, just sometimes a badly, you know, a badly phrased sentence. Um, it's just like in our lives we need editors. Uh, the, I was like, telling a story at lunch uh, with the committee of uh, Ginny. Uh, I had dedicated a collection of essays to Ginny, my, and I called her my most exacting editor. The copy editor, uh, not familiar with the word exacting, put it in the book as, to Ginny, my most exciting editor. (laughs) Ginny got a lot of calls from writers. Anything else that interests you? Well, thank you very much.